Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, every- Hi everyone. And Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, Nathan. And Johanna. <laughs> well, we are uh, we're really excited today for a conversation with uh, Courtney M. Cox, who is a assistant professor at the University of Oregon, and really uh, a fascinating thinker when it comes to questions that we don't always explore uh, on this show, although Derek probably wishes we explore them more, uh, on sort of surveillance, um, discipline, regulation, when it comes to the lives of athletes. Um, so we're really excited to share the conversation with you, and we're not going to give you too much preamble today. Just a reminder, please um, follow the show on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Uh, you can follow the show on Instagram. Maybe one day we will actually use that Instagram account, and then you'll be glad that you followed it. Uh, please, most of all, please subscribe to the show if you do not already, and um, we would really appreciate it if you rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast. And with that, let's head to the show. Courtney M. Cox is assistant professor in the Indigenous, Race, and Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Oregon. Her research examines issues related to identity, globalization, and labor in sport. Her current book project, Double Crossover, Gender, Politics, and Performance in Basketball, considers how black women and non-binary athletes maneuver through the global sports media complex. She has previously worked for ESPN, NPR affiliate station KPCC, and with the WNBA's Los Angeles Sparks. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Um, and we have a lot to get into today because your sort of your work and your thought spans all sorts of issues that we're interested in, but also maybe sometimes don't talk about enough. So we're, we're going to talk about things that we do talk about all the time and other things that we should be talking about more. Yeah. Uh, and the first thing I want to get into is frankly, like the, the shift you've had in your career, because we do like to get into questions around the sports media complex. And so I'm really curious, first, how you came to shift from a career in sports media to the academy, and also how your time in the sports media complex has come to inform your thinking about the sport media complex, political economy, representation, and sport. Yeah, it's so funny. I was just talking to a group of students that I I help lead here at the University of Oregon, and I was laughing because I was really thinking about how in undergrad, I was super, I've always been a nerd, so I mean, there's that. But, and I've always loved sports. Um, And I knew, I peaked athletically around middle school, so I knew it wasn't going to be me on the field playing a sport. And so I think I early on was trying to figure out what that looked like. I was an athletic trainer in high school. I started working at the campus TV station. I was originally an advertising major. I wanted to write a commercial in the Super Bowl was my original goal. I told my parents who were very disappointed at the time. My dad was like, I was hoping you'd be a doctor <laughs> and <you were> write <laughs> commercials. Um, and then, you know, and then even worse, I decided to switch to journalism my first year, which he was like, you're going to be broke forever. <laughs> and so uh, much the disappointment of my parents, um, not only in my, my choice of university, but also my major, um, I think there was this moment of like really pursuing something that felt right. And for me, 
making TV was one of those things that felt really right. So I, I worked at the campus TV station. I also worked at the campus radio station. I covered women's track and field for the school paper, and I just was kind of immersive in that way. And so for me, sports journalism kind of became this natural fit of someone that loves to write, um, loves to talk with people. And I think that that kind of took me to the space of somewhere like ESPN. ESPN was my first job out of undergrad. I moved to Bristol, Connecticut, sight unseen. I, I took a phone wow. interview. Um, I got hired at a very auspicious time, right, um, as the recession was hitting. And, uh, and I had to kind of maneuver my way through the company um, because I was originally hired on as a production assistant in event production for college football and the Heisman Trophy presentation. And so uh, I had to quickly pivot as I realized I wasn't going to be kept in my current position if I stayed there. And so um, I, I moved over to studio directing and I worked as a stage manager and eventually associate director, mostly working in studios, live trucks and control rooms, um, both at the, the headquarters of ESPN as well as Longhorn Network based in Austin, Texas. And so. That's kind of my trajectory there, is kind of falling into a space and loving the adrenaline rush of live television, mm -hmm. which is, is incredible, um, no doubt. But my time there you know, left me with a lot of questions, and a lot of the questions were about race and gender, and I'll just share one story that really stood out to me of like, what am I doing here? Um, and this was when I was still a stage manager, which, you know, I'm pointing at cameras, I'm fixing, you know, ties for sports center anchors. <laughs> and uh, it was a really fun job. There was always something different every day. And I was one of the primary stage managers for sports center, NFL countdown, sports nation shows like that. And so one of the things that happened one day, I walk into sports center and I see this segment that's running, and they used to run these segments with this DJ where he would kind of do these mashups, like end of the month mashups, the top press conferences, moments, sounds of sport that month. And uh, this one was dedicated to Randy Moss. He was retiring. And I remember at the very last frame of this DJ, who's white, um, he has this Randy Moss mask on and this black fro, and it looks like blackface. Like, just, it, mm -hmm. you only see it for a second. And... I realized it had been, I, came, I walked into the studio and I was like, how long has this been running? And they were like, oh, it's been running all morning. I'm walking into noon. So the 9 a.m. to the noon sports center has been running this thing every hour. And uh, there had been kind of this side chat of like black folks that worked uh, in production and, and directing um, in studio. And they were like, I can't believe this is running. I can't believe this got cut. I can't believe people are approving this. But no one wanted to say anything because of the precarity of our labor. Mm -hmm. And uh, and knowing that that there could be repercussions more so than just taking it down or having a conversation about how it got created in the first place. And so I went to you know, one of the supervisors I really trusted in my department. And again, studio directing, very technical job and a really fantastic middle-aged white guy from the East Coast. And I'm just like, we gotta talk right now. There's some weird stuff happening. And so I go through this whole thing about like, why is this, this looks like blackface. I understand that this is a mask, but there's something visually that is a problem. Um, my friends are texting me like, I can't believe you work for this company. Um, and he listens and he's so sympathetic and he was like, Courtney, I'm gonna put the call in. We're gonna get, I'm calling, I'm gonna call the sports center producer right now. We're gonna get this taken down. He was like, but first you have to tell me what blackface is. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was sitting there like, wow. And I was just thinking about how much money the supervising director made. Again, great yeah. person. But I was thinking about the fact that I was 
I was feeling a way about representing this company in this way, and I'm trying to be accountable to my friends, my coworkers. I'm like nervous as I'm talking to him and realizing that I also had to carry that additional labor of educating him about why it was a problem. And I realized, you know, one of my friends pulled me aside and was like, you know, there's like three black producers across the network of, of shows. So if one person works the night shift, one person's on vacation, one person's off that day, who's yeah. in the production meeting to make that decision? And so a lot of my work is informed by thinking about labor more broadly in sport, whether we're thinking about journalists, whether we're thinking about folks that were stage managers where I used to work, whether we're thinking about athletes and their labor. And then just thinking about this idea of representation broadly, not just about wanting to see certain folks in seats talking about mm -hmm. sports, um, but also just thinking about how the sausage is made um, and where those gaps and silences happen behind the camera as well. And, and you've really ended up at a particularly fascinating institution for thinking <laughs> through some of these questions. And Absolutely. as you know, and as our listeners will know, Oregon is, is heavily funded by its alumnus, Phil Knight, um, the, the CEO and, and, uh, of, of Nike. And it's often been referred to as the University of Nike. Mm. Um, has your experience at Oregon influenced the way in which you think about college sport in particular and, and its relationship to sports media and the commodification of amateurism or so-called amateurism? I mean, I don't know if it would be possible for me to be fully cognizant and not, and not be affected <laughs> by these spaces, right? It's, it's, it's one thing to read about it. It's one thing to be in a space, you know, I, I come from a, a very scandalous <laughs> school for my PhD. I went to the University of Southern California in the midst of mm -hmm. like four scandals at the time, um, sports related and non-sports related. And, uh, and so coming here, I think staying in the Pac-12, I felt like I had a good kind of understanding of the culture of sport on the West Coast, but being here physically, um, and thinking, okay, this is gonna be a college town that's elevated by like the track town aesthetic, Hayward Field and Hayward Magic, um, and then the Nike presence, but it is all consuming in a way that is staggering. That's the, that's the only way I can start to describe it in terms of both the, when you say like heavily sponsored university, right? The main campus library is called Knight Library. There is a Knight campus, which is the newer STEM campus. I live on campus, I'm faculty and resident. I live next to Matthew Knight Arena, uh, where the volleyball and basketball teams play. And so it is all consuming and you can also imagine the renovation of Hayward Field, very controversial moment um, for folks that held a lot of nostalgia for the original, original stadium. A lot of Phil Knight's um, power is really exuded in that, both in terms of his donations and his ability to get this space recreated. And so now Eugene will be the home of the World Championships this upcoming summer, right? The first time it's been held in the United States. And so you can think about how there's this incredible booster power. We think about boosters, it's that times a million here, um, sometimes 500 million <laughs> if we think about the amount of money pushed out. And so when we think about amateurism specifically, um, it is, is very much nerve wracking for me in my work, especially the things I think about in my work specifically, um, to think about what's happening, especially if we think about this newer partnership between Phil Knight and Rich Paul and uh, the marketing of college athletes here specifically at the U of O. 
Absolutely. Sorry, I'm just sort of thinking through um, the, the still the, the first story that you shared and kind of how that sort of how that influences sort of your, your lenses and sort of how, and then add to that sort of your experiences being an organ. Um, yeah, I mean, just thank you so much for sharing that. And, and, you know, kind of relatedly, uh, we want to talk about, um, as someone who does have a, a lot of, of insight and experience working in sports media, and then on top of it, of course, the academic experience kind of, um, about the valuation and the marketability and sort of the narrative about women's sport and uh, Victoria mm. Jackson most recently were, were, uh, wrote for Arizona State University's Global Sport Matters, where she said, quote, right now ESPN pays an, a- an average annual rights fee of $34 million to broadcast the women's basketball tournament and all 28 other Division I college sports championships. But a team of sports media and market experts in the Kaplan Report found that the women's championship alone is worth far more from $81 million to even $112 million annually beginning in 2025. Um, so to what extent have these revelations, if at all, changed this narrative about women's sport and marketability? And, and sort of what do you think is the place of women's sport in the, the evolving political economy of NCAA sport? Yeah, I think that there's a really important relationship. A lot of times when we talk about that, whether we're talking about broader kind of insights in terms of pay and equity happening or the thinking about the U.S. Women's National Team lawsuit um, that is ever-present and ever-evolving, I think one of the things that I think about is not only the actual contracts in terms of sponsorship, right? And March, the term March Madness has become a centerpiece for that because March Madness is this trademark that means something to advertisers, that means something to media makers. And part of that ESPN contract in its undervaluation is about sponsors that, that sponsor the men's tournament and they want to be attached to the cultural capital of March Madness, and the women's tournament is the women's tournament, um, I think there's a way they don't, they don't double dip. So people make, advertisers make choices um, based on that visibility, and part of that is about their going to, they're choosing the men's tournament because that is what's marketed. When we think about what's marketed when you're not watching sports or sports center, how many commercials do the women's tournament get, even when it's actually broadcast on ESPN, which is actually, it's really wild. It makes sense that Turner is going to invest in their product they've spent many, many millions of dollars on, but ESPN isn't even marketing the broadcast rights to their own tournament. And so part of it is this the the way that sexism will actually get in the way of the money is my my biggest takeaway from the Kaplan report of like, wow, you're so into the sexism that you are leaving so much money on the table. And so, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, the part of the many, many failures of capitalism is the idea that the market dictates really doesn't help us understand what's going on within this broader sports media complex, both in terms of the valuation of the women's tournament and how much it's it's worth when we look at actually how many folks are watching the tournament. Women's brackets aren't marketed the same way that their male counterparts are. And so for me, every part of this highly mediated space, I mean, the ladders are corporate sponsors. <laughs> I mean, every part, every piece that is involved in this process has a sponsorship slapped onto it. 
And I think there's a bigger conversation about that. Is not, is not so much do we want the exploitation of the men's game to be completely mirrored on the women's side? I think we do us, ourselves a disservice by starting from that framework. But I'm really interested in what the Kaplan Report puts into very clear numbers about how there's this continual underinvestment in women's sports more broadly, even as the women's game still brings in so many viewers despite being completely disregarded um, on the media front. And so I think that speaks to the power of the sport and the power that it's good sport. But the other side of it is how there's still, it reveals to me there's so much work to do. And what I fear most as we are on the cusp of the 50th anniversary of Title IX is that there will be this over-celebratory patting of oneself on the back and we won't have Victorian and other amazing scholars work to really push back on the amount of work that is still left to do. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. One thing that Victoria was writing about uh, in that piece, and, and I've been thinking about too, was... I'm curious whether you see this the same way. The fact that this really egregious under-marketing and undervaluation of women's sport, the fact that, like, is there a relationship there to the exploitation that happens on the men's basketball and football side? Like, as you pointed out, I'm right there with you. Do we want to duplicate that on the women's side? Absolutely not. But beyond that... The NCAA and the sort of the college sports system has relied for so long on essentially what we are seeing is a lie that you must subsidize basically all the other sports, including in particularly women's sport, with the money from men's basketball and men's football, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, we absolutely can't entertain the prospect of genuine pay for play, not to be confused with NIL gig work. Right. we can't afford pay for play because it will necessarily have to result in cutting all these other sports, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, th- this is a, like a, a fundamental justification, therefore, for the exploitative dynamics on the men's side. Um, but these numbers are telling us very clearly that the women's side could and can very clearly pay for itself if you allow it to. So if they're deliberately suppressing it, are they doing it just so that they have this justification? Ooh. I don't, you know, that's a fantastic question. I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I think that equally, you know, with the numbers we've gotten from the Kaplan Port, the, the numbers that have come out recently are on just how much uh, potential uh, wealth, uh, financial stability is lost through this idea of, football and men's basketball sustaining the university and how it's very racialized, it's very gendered in a particular way when we have that conversation. And those numbers are very staggering to me too. It's something it's something to to understand that that's how these systems are built. It's another thing to see the actual, you know, I think it's like $10 billion, like really staggering numbers over the past five years of just incredible amount of money generated by um, football and men's basketball. And those are also you know, especially football is a very expensive sport to maintain at a university. And so one of the other things that's striking to me is how many men's football programs are not actually profitable. They break even sometimes at most. And so we're really talking about the top of the top in terms of D1 football programs that even have money to spare just because the sheer number of people you're outfitting and traveling with and taking care of. And so I'm really interested in in how this idea of charity gets 
spread across women's sport, not only at the college level, but even like this idea of being grateful, I think is one of the things I see so often in my work of like this idea of you should just take what you get. This idea of the WNBA even opting out of their last CBA was read as like, oh, you think you, sh- you deserve more money? Um, there's this, just this interesting idea. And, and even when Sedona Prince's TikTok went viral, there were still folks that were like, you should be lucky you even have a tournament. Um, and yeah. so I think baked into that, baked into that is this really strange mixture where it is both the idea of you are being quote unquote taken care of, I'm using scare quotes here, taken care of by men's sports. And it's always like the men are taking care of you. Not to say, you know, there's all these other men's programs that are also not profitable. Um, But there is something paternalistic and gross to me about that. Um, And and also financially very false, we're finding out in many ways. And so I think there could be a little fun conspiracy there in terms of (laughs) why the perpetration of that is actually sustaining sustaining this line in a way that, especially for women's basketball, um, because their overhead is lower than, say, football, um, there is a way that a lot of these programs are profitable and sustainable on their own and could be even more so if there was just a slight move towards any kind of equitable marketing and investment. Um, and so when we think about how short of a history um, the NCAA Women's Tournament, we know the Women's Tournament goes back further, but if we think about how how much shorter that history is in terms of the NCAA Women's Tournament, it's actually remarkable um, how much the game has grown. If we even just think about just since Title IX, the, the nice thing I will say about Title IX um, is thinking about, you know, in such a short period of time, there has this has been this massive proliferation, and we see it across certain sports more than others, which is some of where we still need to go. Um, but you, it's really, really something to think about when these small turns, these small investments happen, how much the game is allowed to grow. And so I'm I'm really trying to focus and think about the complication of 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 investing in this idea of wanting more marketing, which could be also, as you mentioned, like more exploitation, but just thinking about more opportunity. Um, and, and I think about that in terms of not only the visibility, the opportunities for career growth, um, but also in other spaces like coaching um, and what those possibilities are um, for the women's game. So I'm, I'm very ambivalent about what the, the right move forward is um, because yeah. I don't want to be entrenched in this idea that these universities will save women's sport um, or that that capitalism will do anything in terms of the lives and labors of these of these athletes. But I think that the the Kaplan report and so much of this other work that scholars have done is is really telling in terms of the potential if we were fully allowed to immerse ourselves in these sports that that we love so much and able to see their their full growth and flourish without someone stepping in um, in the way of, of misogyny, basically. Yeah, and, and there are so many ambivalences because it's like as you point out. There are, like, we have the question around coaching and who has access to coaching. And then at the same time, this is within a system in which the coaches are benefiting from the exploitation of the players, yeah. inherently, because that's where the money has to flow, right? It's like if you, can't, if you can't pay for the best players, which is what you would do in any open labor market in the world of sport, right? That's, that's how you win. You get the best players. But if you can't right. pay for the players, you have to pay for the people who can get you the players, which yeah. is the coaches. So really, the, all of the revenue that should be flowing to the players who are doing the work and sacrificing their bodies flows to the coaches instead. Um, so it's just, it's so tough. You, you can't, like, you can't just solve one of these problems, I guess is what it comes down to, right? Like, it's all, it's all kind of, you have to, 
I mean, I, I don't know. For me, it's like we, we just we, we have to start with the basic question of exploitation. And like if, until we until we unravel the exploitation at the heart of college sport, we're just going to be, you know, we're going to be place, placing a Band-Aid on a system that's causing all sorts of harm. Yeah, I learned so much um, from y'all on Twitter just in general. But um, one of the things that I was really sitting with over the past week or so, I think, um, was this idea of payouts for coaches that are that are fired, right? Yes. These contracts. And I think about you know, this idea that these programs are bleeding all this money. And I'm like, who is writing these contracts? Like, what law school is teaching folks (laughs) that these are contracts that make sense? And so this idea of, you know, the universities going back and just looking at how many folks are still on the payroll and still getting paid by these state schools every year because of these ridiculous contracts and this idea of, well, we can't fund these programs or we might have to, you know, shut down some men's programs because, you know, the ladies are out here trying to have it all. It's like, or, or you could pay these coaches less, these football and men's basketball coaches less, or right Decent contracts, this idea of we can't pay players because the whole system would crumble. And I'm like, you could actually pay so many college athletes across the Power Five alone yeah. just off of these terrible contracts. And so yeah. it's it's hard to imagine. It's hard to do these little piecemeal um, extractions and um, improvements in these systems that are just foundationally ridiculous <laughs> from any economic standpoint. It really highlights like the the rigid hierarchy and the uh, the extent of the exploitation that exists in college sport. When when these coaches have that leverage to be able to get those clauses in contracts, mm-hmm. that speaks to like just how how huge this is. And I don't understand how there's not more critique of that publicly. How there, there's not. Uh, people aren't talking about state schools and and paying ninety five million dollar yeah. buyout clause. That's just have, uh, Derek. Uh, Michigan State just <laughs> signed their coach to a ten year ninety five million dollar extension. That's at Michigan State. Like we're not talking about one of the premier um, Power Five football schools. I mean, like Michigan yeah. State might fancy themselves to be, but like, where is this money coming from? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you can contrast that a little bit with like the the fact that in the NFL there are non-guaranteed contracts for laborers who are putting their bodies at risk and like you you just start to see this whole system. And I'm so with you Courtney. It's such a it's a systemic thing here that like there's not one kind of simple answer, but there's so many problems. Um, so many problems. So any, anyways, I think we could talk about that all day, but I'd like to pivot to a question um, that's more, or that's very aligned with your with your brilliant work. And, and that's, I know that you've been thinking through wearable technology for some time, and particularly in the, the context of college sport. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, I think, a really important issue that we haven't really addressed on this show, even though I am personally very interested in, in surveillance and surveillance technology, but we haven't really talked about it on the show. So can you, for our listeners, can you first explain what wearable athletic surveillance technology, such as WHOOP, um, what that is, and how it's historically been used in the context of college sport? Sure. So one of the things, so I'm working on a broader project um, that is, 
I'm situating it as advanced analytics, and I might have to find a different word that can kind of encompass, but one chapter of this project is about wearable technology. Um, and so one of the things I was really curious about as I was starting to see you know, all these different technologies and Instagram, I'm sure, you know, if you, if you move your body in any kind of way, you've got an ad um, for Whoop or for Aurora Band or for any of these various technologies. A lot of folks started with the, you know, the OG version is the Fitbit um, and the Apple Watches, all the, the proliferation of wearable tech, um, you know, going back to the old like Nike Plus, when you put the little sensor in your shoe. I just started to think about the relationship between both consumer tech and then, you know, athletes at the highest level of the game that are also using this technology. And so I started to think about like, we are all having so much of our biometric data taken in at all times. If you have an iPhone, there's an unhealth data piece. There's, you know, and so I started thinking about because sporting bodies are so hyper visible, that gives us a really great space to think about what all this technology and all this constant um, data collection and analysis really means for not only athletes, obviously <laughs> LeBron's health data is much more valuable than mine, right? But I started to think about what the implications in sport tell us really about the future of our health data, the future of our data more broadly. And so there are a couple of things. And, and you know, I have this one anecdote. The first thing, this is a connection also to my, my previous life in sports media, where I really started thinking about this. And it's so funny that it's finally coming to fruition in a small way here. When I worked at Longhorn Network, we used to do this show um, that is very funny in hindsight called Football Practice, which is like the last thing any football coach wants broadcast on television, right? Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. The most stressful show for sure, I will say, I ever worked on. I worked the decision, and I will say Football Practice was way more stressful. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Um, and so Football Practice, because, you know, there's recruits that come out. You can't show them on camera. There's injured players that have injured jerseys. You have to be on guard. And the show is live, so there's just like... It's just hectic. And at the time, you know, Mac Brown was never happy with, there was always a phone call after of like, you showed this one thing. Um, there were certain drills, obviously you can't show. You pretty much saw athletes stretching. Like it could be called football stretching um, because by the time you take away all the things you really can't show in practice, um, you're pretty much warming up and cooling down. It's so uh, want, you got to write an autoethnography of your role in football practice because, like, you could just deconstruct <laughs> the entire sport media complex of college football through that experience. Oh my gosh, what a ride! Um, and there was this one segment, and and I see it vividly all the time, and it really made me think about what we're doing um, within college sport more than many of the other things I, I definitely saw firsthand. But there was this piece that was about this little pill that athletes were all given as they walked into the practice field. They were given this little pill and some water to swallow, and they weren't given any information about what was happening. It was just kind of like mandatory. There was no skipping the line. And then there was a sensor they would put around their midsection, and it would measure their internal temperature. And it was really this technology that's basically you're swallowing this little chip that can then do this measurement. And it would just, it, it was there to prevent 
heat stroke, basically. Um, and so one of the things I saw really interesting was this kind of um, reaction from kind of this old school versus new school way of managing risk and managing health of players because the strength and conditioning coach, which is Benny Wiley at the time, really swole, really fit dude, he was completely averse to this technology. And so his technology was, I will wear two sweatshirts and double sweatpants, and I'll do the workouts with the players. I will do, I'll run with them and do everything that they do. And as long as I'm standing, they should be good, which is, of course, not how biology works <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> but I saw this very, like, he's like double, you know, the doubling up on the sweatshirt and sweatpants, and then this technology and these sensors. And of course, no, this is NASA technology. That's the, you know, I think before college sports, NASA was really the only other place where this was developed. This was developed for astronauts, but it's being used for 18-year-old college athletes. And so I started thinking, like, can you choose to not take this? How much information do they get about this? How long does it take to leave your body? Um, what, what side effects, what adverse things might happen? Um, as well as also acknowledging, like, this, you know, heat stroke is a huge risk for you know, high school and college players in the state of Texas. And so I understood both like the potential help there, as well as, you know, thinking about when you sign to play at the college level, you sign away so many of your rights. Um, and then you continue to do that each year, right? And so um, for me, that kind of started me thinking about how this technology that we wear on, or even obviously inside of our bodies, um, there's a, a way that college sports get tested on. They're kind of the guinea pigs for a lot of this technology before it hits the market for the average consumer or an elite professional athlete. And so I kind of started from the space of college because of that that segment that we ran. And it was this very celebratory, fun, like, oh, Benny Wiley, so fun. And I was like, I, I think there's something happening here. Um, and so for me, I'm constantly at odds of the safety versus surveillance piece because there are ways I see wearable tech, like smart helmets that can predict, um, that can predict traumatic brain injury. Um, I think I see those as a way we can bypass a lot of the ingrained cultural practices of playing through pain, for example. Um, when the helmet lights up, you got to go off the field. And so a lot of the things, the cultural mores that we would love to change in sport, I think there are ways technology definitely helps that. I think that when you wear a whoop strap and you're, and you're answering these questions every day about what you ate or drank or smoked or <laughs> who was in your bed, I think that, that there are these lines, right? Um, how much do we want coaches, ADs to be able to access about athletes um, or GMs and owners of teams if we think about the pro um, example? But I started to have these questions, right? What do we gain and what do we give up? with these technologies, both for ourselves, you know, we start with athletes and thinking about, I think about collective bargaining agreements and how big data will have to be infused. It's already doing so in the NBA on a small level, but it doesn't protect college athletes that are going into the draft. It only protects current NBA players. Um, and so thinking about who has access to their data that's being collected? What can they do with it? How can they leverage it or not? Um, and so I'm, I'm sitting with these questions currently. I don't have all the answers. But it is an entirely new world that's completely opening up. And the relationship between media, tech, and sport is one that is completely entrenched in, in history, um, but is constantly proliferating into all these new industries. I mean, the reaction to the changing of the Staples Center was not something I had on my bingo board. But I mean, even that way, this idea 
of, well, crypto shouldn't be in sport. I'm like, these things have been in sport for a while. Wow. <clears throat> Sorry, my, my mind is a bit blown here. Um, I'm just making like all kinds of connections. Um, most obviously, like the whole idea of, of giving athletes pills to take without um, their knowledge and, and consent. I, I don't know. It's like alarm bells of like doping under communism and which is the story that we kind of typically use as like that is the most evil thing and we in the U.S. never do anything like that. Um, so like this may be a really basic question, but like, and you may not know it, but I guess to kind of walk through it, like why not explain to athletes what it, why they're taking this pill? Like if it is ostensibly to take care of their health, then like, why are they trying to hide that? Do you think? Um, you know, I don't think that they're trying to hide it per se. I think that there is just kind of this manufactured body, right? This optimization of the body that is happening in sport in a particular way. And, and more broadly, there's this, you know, there's an, the bulletproof phenomenon or these other, you know, self-optimization self practices that are happening even outside in these wellness spaces, I think is indicative of that too. But one of the things that I think is not about like hiding the information or what it does, right? Because you know, when they come up to you with the sensor, what they're sensing, it's more like, I don't have to explain this to you so you make a decision. It's more like, do this because this is what we're going to do. And so, you know, I think that they are poked and prodded in a particular way so often that, you know, at some point you, it, there's a way that you're just regimented into this. And so I think, you know, there's not this hiding. It's just like, I, I don't have to explain it because you're going to do it. Um, everyone's going to do it. Um, and so there may be ways that some of this stuff is explained in the training room. There may be ways that it's explained in other spaces so that everyone's acclimated. But I just thought it was so interesting. No one is skipping the line. Like you see, you know, everyone walking through and taking one. And so it made me question or, or want to know, can someone opt out? Um, can someone make this independent decision? And the, the thing that gave me a little pause to think that that might not be the case um, is when the pandemic hit and college athletes who are constantly told to us that they are not employees were the ones being asked to come back to campus when students were not. And when they came back to campus and were asking about safety protocols, how are you going to help make sure I don't get COVID, all of these things, there was this massive pushback. Um, and I think about the hashtag we are united statement on behalf of Pac-12 athletes of like none of this makes sense or this idea of athletes giving these forms at practices that are basically relieving the university of any responsibility should they contract COVID. And so I'm thinking about this relationship. If they are asked to relinquish all responsibility to the university, I'm, I'm thinking that there is something relationally happening there, right? This idea of like, well, no, you don't need to go talk to a lawyer. Just sign, sign this really quick. And I think that's really the same thing of like, well, just take this pill. Just, this is for you. This is for your benefit. We just need to do this really quickly. And so there's something about that. Like, why am I being handed these forms to just quickly sign? Um, and then just thinking about how we even boost up signing day as a concept, where it's like, 
like the official signing away of all of your rights um, to a university in perpetuity, like please sign here, we will broadcast it again on ESPN and you will wear the hat and it will be a thing. Um, and so I'm really sit with this, the signing away and how so much of this tech stuff is also embedded um, in what the university can do once you get there. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. One, what you're describing, like the, the, the fundamental dehumanization that goes into it, because what we're talking about is like, these athletes become performance machines, right? And I mean, there's yeah. so much literature on this um, in the context of, you know, sociology of sport and beyond. But I mean, like, that is what we're describing. It doesn't matter what they think, what they feel, what they want. What matters is that you're going to optimize their performance. And like, we're, they're just supposed to accept, right, that the coaches and trainers and whoever else have this kind of roadmap to that performance. And like, it doesn't really matter what they think and want. Um, but, but the thing is, we can't isolate that from the, the kind of, the power dynamics that are also at play here, right? Which yeah. is to say, what we often talk about now um, through the work of Aaron Hatton, this idea of status coercion, this idea mm -hmm. that like, and as you've been repeatedly coming back to this, like it, it would be, it, it's completely um, disingenuous to suggest that like there's any kind of actual consent happening here because mm -hmm. players and the staffs, everyone understands the power dynamic, which says it is the coaching staff that gets to determine who gets to play, who gets to have a scholarship, et cetera. And so anytime the player says or does anything, and you, you were even talking about this, doesn't, I mean, it's obviously not just college sport. This was true for you at ESPN, right? You were talking mm -hmm. about the precarity, right? This is yeah. true across our economy, but it's certainly a, a heightened reality for college athletes. They know that everything that they say or do is gonna reflect on their ability to continue to have this brief opportunity to showcase their abilities and hopefully one day be paid for their work as athletic workers. Um, so that's, that's obviously all happening here and it seems to be really impacting these questions of surveillance. Um, but like, we don't just see that with, the wearable tech is a fascinating example that I wasn't really, like it should have been on my radar and it was not on my radar. So like I'm, I'm really aghast at that. And like the pill example like Johanna, I'm really aghast at that too. But I've, like, I've been thinking this year about, you know, the spotter EDU systems used by schools like the University of North Carolina to monitor whether players are attending class. You know, like the, the implicit dimension of any system of surveillance in college sport is that if the coaches are displeased with the information they receive, they're empowered to discipline and punish campus athletic workers, whether it's by withholding the playing time, as we were talking about, which has a material impact on their future livelihoods. Yeah. But it also is through corporal punishment, right? Like they literally punish their bodies through extra running, et cetera. And I mean, we, we gotta extend this further if we wanna keep talking about UNC to think about the ways that the bodies of athletes are surveilled as part of the research activities of the institution. When they yes. outfit, foot, outfit football players to study concussions, knowing that the entire research project is predicated on the harm the players must ultimately be, but have not yet been subjected to, right? Like, you know yeah. you're studying concussions because you know concussions are harmful, but in order to in order to study the concussions, you need to have a player who hasn't yet had the concussion, but will have a concussion as part of your research project. And yet like university IRBs are just happily mm. signing on to this, right? Because they're reaping all the research funding from, guess what? The NCAA, the NFL, the Department of Defense, right? I mean, that, that's, substitute, that's subsidizing our institutions of higher education. Um, anyway, this is a long and very circuitous route to the question of like how you grapple with what surveillance says about the dynamics of college sport. I feel like, 
what's really difficult for me um, is the role that I am playing in the system. You know, I I sit with that a lot. You know, there's ways that I, you know, we can try to radicalize, you know, college athletes when they're in our classrooms, right? There's ways that this can feel subversive or we can try to support them, especially as they try to think about what it might mean to organize together. I think there's ways that we can be useful when they need us, but we are still part of this supposed institution of higher education that, as you mentioned, is in very much violation of its student body in variety of ways, right? And it's not just and it's just not just athletes, right? Um, it, it's happening across the board, and so I'm I always struggle with that. What does it mean? And and anyone that has taught at a, a big time university with sport, you know, you've seen the the coordinators, the assistant coaches that that lurk in the doorway and and look to count and see how many folks, or you've gotten the email of like, well, it's midterm season, they've signed away their right um, to protect their grades, you have to tell me how they're doing in your class. And so whether it's this low tech or high tech version, the surveillance they feel, there's ways that we can try to resist, right? Um, <laughs> and we can ignore the email and hope they don't email us back. Um, or, or we can try to like close our classroom to, to the point of like, they aren't being surveilled by whoever's checking to see who's in your class and awake. But I, I, I find it, it hard to completely divest because when we think about it, kinesiology departments, sports science departments, human physiology departments, um, they are producing the cutting edge research for these spaces. And as you mentioned, it's based off of, well, this person tore their ACL or this person had a concussion. And they become research subjects in a way that, again, is based upon a document signed to enter this institution, this, this minor league system that's created. And then you can then be experimented upon or you can be used, right? And so when you read so many of these research materials, so many things published in journals that are like, 10 college athletes were, were used for this project or whatever, for me, it's impossible to think about the current and future world of sports medicine and sports research without understanding that most of the things you're going to read are based on college athletes that are laborers in the system that are used to push the science forward. And wearable tech is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? There's a corporate intervention of this startup made this watch and they sent 15 of them to the rowing team and they want them to use them, right? The coach gets a little kickback. The coach tells the players to wear the watch and it's rinse and repeat. And it, it is no different than a Sonny Vaccaro, right? It's just this new tech world. And so I'm always grappling. Now, I'm not the one putting watches on athletes in my classroom, so there's levels to this. But I, I, I always sit with, yes, I can sit and critique the University of Nike where I currently receive a paycheck. But I'm also part of this system, and I'm constantly trying to figure out where I fit, where are the possibilities for resistance, where are the possibilities for collaboration. Um, and I, I sometimes just feel completely overwhelmed, to be very honest. Not unlike working at ESPN, <laughs> where things are happening and you feel so powerless because the machine is running perfectly. Yeah, yeah and, and a little... Uh... Simone Brown wrote about this in, in Dark Matters. I'm not mm, sure if... if yeah. And she wrote a lot about like how systems are designed to, to create this surveillance 
and it leads to both discursive and material practices that sort of reify these boundaries, borders, and and, and um, challenges and barriers around racial lines. And she also talked about how, like, we are all complicit in that yeah. system. Um, and and that immediately struck when I'm listening um, to you go through sort of your reflexive take on, and it's constantly something I think we all struggle with on this show as well, trying to figure out how we can critique the system, but we're also all part of this. And by the way, I love how you said supposed system of higher education, um, mm-hmm. because I think that, that that's key. One of the things that like I think w- I struggle grappling with is that we, all four of us, work for institutions that... Um, subject athletes to innumerable harms. And, and Sarah Hatterberg, a, a, a sociologist from the College of Charleston, wrote about the NCAA as this total institution, borrowing from Irving Goffman's work in Asylums, where he sort of argues that this total institution is a place of residence or work where a large number of people of like-situated individuals are cut off from wider society for a period of time and together lead an enclosed and formally administered round of life. Now, Hatterberg argues that uh, NCAA Division I is consistent with this conceptualization because the athletes within it experience uh, an absence of barriers between various spheres of life insularity within their uh, athletic community, strict scheduling um, and surveillance, and institutional objectives used to justify totalitarian practices, including pervasive surveillance and extensive institutional control. Now, you've spoken a little bit about this already, but do you see the NCAA today in the supposed emancipatory era of name image likeness as having been freed from some of these grips, um, such as the sort of manifest controlling techniques, or do you think this like institutional or total institutional diagnosis may be still valid today? First of all, I just want to shout out the citational practices of this program thus far, um, (laughs) because I think it's really beautiful and important um, in connecting these dots. And so, you know, Goffman and, you know, obviously there's a a Foucauldian read we could also (laughs) offer Mm -hmm, here. mm -hmm. Simone Brown is really important in my my big data book because um, a lot of her work really informs how I think about surveillance um, and and how I think about the cultural economic practices of it. And so thank you so much for shouting that out. She's very important, um, which is why so much of that kind of aligns with with a lot of her intervention. Um, So here's, here's my thing. Here's my struggle. So I think that not much has changed from where I see it on the ground where I stay in Eugene, Oregon. Not much has changed in the landscape and lived experience of college athletes as they interface with the university and with its athletics department. What NIL does is prevent uh, some of the issues of uh, a Chase Young, for example, or right there. There are some of these. Mm-hmm. Um, moments we've seen at the Ohio State University under Jim Trestle, for example, the tattoos for autographs, like a lot of those things, the John, the Money Manziel autograph uh, gate. Um, there are a lot of those things that we don't, we will not see, right? These very ridiculous NCAA infractions based off of autographs or merch or whatever. Um, 
So there's something to that, right? You won't have to get in trouble for taking out a loan from a family friend because you can sell something or you can build an endorsement contract. But what I think that I am starting to resent, uh, maybe that's not the right word, what I am starting to really feel attuned to with NIL is how this is now this this cover for still not compensating college athletes. Yeah. Um, and so they're like, well, you can make money now. And I'm like, but they are still unpaid <laughs> from the source. So they're like, they're still multi-million. So now there's just new exploitative systems being created, right? So now Rich Paul and Phil Knight can team up to become mega boosters on campus of like, you know, they're now Suge Knight. Like it's like come to death row over here where it's like we will market you and let the sport business school and sport product design use you and mold you in a particular way. Um, we will we will curate your brand for you and we will take our cut off the top, right? Mm-hmm. And we can partner with the university and create space. And so these aren't spaces, again, in these supposed institutions of higher learning that are saying, wow, this is a new opportunity um, to allow these college athletes who are students to become branding gurus, to get entry into law school and negotiate these very same contracts that they are being subjected to. This isn't an opportunity for a college athlete to have more agency. It's just an opening for more fo- more folks to make money off of them. Um, because if you're getting an NIL contract, I can't imagine what these brands are getting. They're making everyone an influencer. And, you know, it's also like the mom and pop car dealership, right? That's one thing, mm-hmm. too. Or the local steakhouse will, you know, sponsor the offensive linemen or whatever. So there's different levels to, to how this is moving. But as I see, a lot of these programs are starting to hire younger influencer kind of folks onto their staffs so that those folks can mold these athletes. This is a recruiting tool. Like, we will help build your brand. So now we're turning young athletic bodies into brands even earlier now. And so it all, to me, gets away from a lot of the fight that I saw happening um, by college athletes, especially during pandemic, as they were able, when everything stopped, they were able to hop on Zooms and organize and talk about what they actually wanted. And... I feel like NIL in many ways fizzles out a lot of the momentum that I think the NCAA was definitely feeling in terms of people being like, this actually doesn't make sense for this to be a nonprofit, for these athletes to not get paid. And NIL has quelled a lot of that um, or has taken up so much of the space that I think we're losing a lot of opportunity and momentum that felt really exciting to me, you know, a year or two ago. And so... That's what I fear. That's what mm-hmm. bothers me is that we are still moving away. Now they're they're like, oh, they're paid now. And I'm like, they're, they still are not paid <laughs> by their yeah. actual factual employer. So I, I, I still struggle with that. Um, and I struggle with the facade of amateurism as it still is not allowing the full potential that, that I see in terms of organizing their labor. And so I think we're still under the sham that still exists. So I think the asylum reference, the panopticon, all of these these references still hold for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to hit a few things to follow up. One, you know, you were listening all the, you know, the, there's the mom and pop dealerships, but there's the big companies, and there's also Barstool Sports, which oh has sponsored gosh. over 4,000 oh, plus yeah. college athletes up to this point. Um, so that's one piece. Uh, another piece is, you know, you talk about amateurism, and yeah, in the, in the new constitution that the uh, NCAA is in the process of drafting and will be ratifying in January, um, despite the fact that uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, who we had on the show recently, the NLRB's general counsel, specifically said 
that the term student athlete is used to chill student student, college athlete organizing and activism. Uh, and, and like chastened the organization directly for the use of student athlete and said it was in violation of um, the National Labor Relations Act. They used it 44 times in the new constitution, the term student athlete. So that's not doubling down or tripling down. That's going down 44 yeah. more times. And let me just add one more thing because I, I'm with you all the way on everything you had to say about like, the fact that pay for play is like yeah. the real frontier here, right? That the real issue for them for the NCAA, it's easy to concede NIL because someone else is footing the bill for NIL. Well, mm-hmm. 85% of FBS athletic directors decided that it was important to tell the world, no one asked, by the way, no one, no one asked for this. They just decided that it was really important to tell everyone that 85% of them, when surveyed, answered that they are, quote, highly concerned about college athletes being classified as employees because, and I'm going to quote from them here because they decided that they really needed to share this with us. The reason they're so concerned is that this might mean that there are corresponding benefits and protections such as the rights to organize, strike, overtime pay, minimum wage, health and safety protections, and more. 85% of athletic directors in the FBS are pretty worried that college athletes might get more health and safety protections. Wow, wow. It's brutal. Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. And in like in this entire context, while this is all happening and it's been this has been going on for so long, we've been able to gamble and we've been able to um make money and accumulate forms of capital or risk capital on the backs of campus athletic workers. So I'd like to pivot to a, a question about a bit about gambling and, and something that I don't think I and I think my the co-host would agree that we've sufficiently reckoned with um, in our own work. And it, it seems to be um, and I, I think it's it's fairly fairly easy to um, argue that there's been an increasing normalization of gambling um, across North American sports. And this is yielding a wide range of what I think are deeply insidious uh, consequences, not least the fact that it's yielded an almost unfathomable level of abuse for athletes on social media who may not um, perform as one would expect. There's a way in which we might think about this in connection also to the proliferation of fantasy sports, Mm. sports, which I think is even worse for social media, to be honest predicated on the commodification and thus dehumanization of athletic workers. How do you appraise the place of gambling and fantasy sports in the North American sporting ecosystem today? So I'm going to start um, <laughs> with my own positionality on gambling more broadly. Um, I, I do not gamble, not because I have this kind of moral disposition <laughs> in any kind of way, but uh, I, I just, I, it stresses me out. It stresses me out if I'm in <laughs> Vegas and I'm up, I'm gambling at a table and I'm winning, I'm stressed. If I'm losing, I'm stressed. I have like a $20 limit like at the slot machines because after $20, I'm like, I could have spent this elsewhere. I just... I cannot gamble because it stresses me. I'm just not the person. It's too anxiety-inducing. And it is triple that when we're talking about actual human beings <laughs> that are making all kinds of decisions. Um, I, people that, that gamble, you know, just from a, a sheer stress level, people that gamble on college sports, I'm like, they're 
college sports are just so volatile, right? And so yeah. there is something that I assume people are just trying to feel something <laughs> if they are are gambling, um, on, on, especially at the college level. Um, from a, a, a standpoint of thinking about the ethics behind this, I have been shocked, quite frankly, maybe it's my own naivete, but I have been shocked at the proliferation of gambling when so much of my youth um, was about uh, this disdain for how gambling ruins the purity of the sport, um, how there is this very pastoral view of what sport gives us and how there's this shady kind of underworld of folks that are gambling, right? So the, there's always, I feel like there were just kind of these little like PSA kind of feeling of like these smoky books where people are are have these underhanding dealings or people's you know knees getting taken out before a big game or you know the 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 boxer that throws the the match you know like I just feel like there was such a culture embedded in our media practices of how gambling would would ruin the foundational beauty of sport and now we live in this space where you know when when you know DraftKings and FanDuel first came out, it was like the only ad. Like every ad during a sporting event was like <laughs> DraftKings, <laughs> um, FanDuel. Yeah. Like all these things were going yeah. back to back to back. And then they infiltrated the actual sporting spaces, right? So you go to Staples Center, it's like the DraftKings bar. You go to an NFL game, FanDuel had a little setup with all the TVs so you could check your fantasy lineups. And it just completely took over. And especially when we think about fantasy sports, which used to have this really fun, I'm, I'm talking like I'm like a fantasy hipster, but this idea of like <laughs> you building with your friends, right? And that was very much started from this low tech aesthetic of like, let's dra have this draft board and, and make fun of each other and, and kind of like build community through this season long endeavor that we embark on together. And, and I feel like that's kind of the aesthetic that I had baked into um, the fantasy sports that that I first jumped into, which for me was NFL fantasy is kind of was my gateway drug. And so it was a way for me to connect with my friends from college, having the draft, having this kind of situation, the bragging rights, the stories baked in, um, who drafted a kicker too early. Like these are the stories that kind of built, <laughs> built many friendships. And, and it's so gendered, you know, I've been the only woman in multiple fantasy leagues I played in. And so with daily fantasy, it just was this, it just was the performance enhancing drug of fantasy sport. And so it proliferated into this massive industry. And I have one chapter of the data book that is about gambling because it has permeated in gambling where if you go to a book, people have spreadsheets, people are crunching numbers and building algorithms based on winning. The people that have the big checks in the daily fantasy commercial are doing that through advanced algorithms. They're people that do not care about sports at all. This is how they make money. They know business algorithms. They, knew, they know business analytics. Or they're an engineer. They're someone that can reverse engineer these systems. And they put a ton of money into daily fantasy. They flood these various spaces. And they make a ton of money. Um, and there's really fantastic work. Other folks have already done about this really weird space um, of daily fantasy and who makes money off of it. And of course, um, unsurprising, it's it's not who you think. It's not someone putting $20 in. You're not going to move up the leaderboard by doing that. And so these systems haven't been built. They're really weird kind of MLMs. or they're, It's a weird algorithmic pyramid scheme of like the people at the bottom are just giving the money up. Uh, and the folks at the top that have figured out the algorithm are running the table. And so um, it's a really wild time to think about gambling because of all the ways that 
um, certain folks, and Pete Rose is, is obviously a, an, a, a blatant example, but the way that folks that have been involved in gambling have been read as destroying the, the moral fabric of sport. Um, and now we're in a space where teams and leagues are actively partnering with gambling enterprises, um, some of whom have had already massive scandals in terms of hacking um, or any kind of unsavory behavior. And so it's really interesting to see that that coming to fruition in this way. Um, when, again, I was of the mindset that there would never be a professional team <laughs> in Vegas because there would be this proximity to this, this underbelly of sports gambling. And, and, you know, boy, was I wrong, right? Um, and so I'm really amazed in my work as a complete outsider. There's ways that sometimes being so close to sport, whether you're a sports fan or just someone that's, you know, or a former athlete or someone that's been close to it, sometimes it's hard to make the familiar strange. And I feel like the gambling side has been so easy for me because it is such a strange world. Um, there are such fantastic characters within it and folks are so willing to talk about it. And so you'll see on your timeline. And again, I think the NFL has a specific hold and I think college football has a specific hold on people in terms of gambling, um, where I see people talk, like you said, there is a dehumanizing factor of talking about these people like they are chess pieces, right? Um, of talking about a lineup in a particular way. And then there's obviously to go back to my old employer, there is this infamous little skit where they were drafting players and it, it very much resembled the get out scene of like bidding on black bodies. And so um, we've seen that play out, the dehumanization aspect in real time across media spaces for sure. And then also the, the average person, right? When you are no longer consuming the sport holistically, you're watching Red Zone, right? Because it's about Who's scoring a touchdown? Who got that pick? Was that someone on my team? And so it has deconstructed sport in a way that is interesting from a media perspective for me, selfishly. But it does speak to these larger systems of performing bodies, you know, whether we're registering them on watches um, or whether, whether or not we're quantifying their worth, their value monetarily. It's a weird market exchange that we've built into an already um, really capitalist system as is. Absolutely. And, you know, really, you just led us so fantastically to the next question, um, which is sort of like, what is the impact of this increasing dehumanization of on athletes and also on, on the decision makers themselves? So, you know, what impact, whether you're talking about kind of like gambling or sort of surveillance and, and all these other issues we've been talking about, you know, what impact does this advanced analytics movement have on on athletes and again on the decision makers, uh, specifically as the movement shifts power along race, racial and class lines, which you've gestured to by coding, for example, some knowledge as quote unquote scientific ex expertise and other knowledge as quote unquote kind of experiential or natural. Yeah. So, you know, one of the questions that comes to mind for me right away is who gets to be an analyst? Mm -hmm. Who gets to be an expert? Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, there's been really great pieces, and Amin Al-Hassan, who is an ESPN analyst, talks about his time before he was um, on cam for ESPN. He worked in some of these spaces, specifically in the NBA, and because he has engineer, like he's, he's an engineering guy, and so the algorithms and a lot of this crunching of the numbers came very naturally to him in terms of his own expertise and skill. 
but he talked about what it was like to be one of the only black folks working in these spaces, right, uh, in the NBA, um, because these analytic departments are so white, they're typically men. And he was like, there's a ton of black folks that have MBAs, that have engineering degrees or math degrees um, that could come in and crunch these stats, um, that can come in and code. And so he thought about it in terms of increasing the disparity, the racial and gender disparities um, within front offices as analytics kind of build out. Um, I don't know if folks uh, remember, but like, you know, Maybe, and, and time is completely lost on me, so I want to say um, at some point last year slash early this year, there was this kind of scandal within the Dallas Mavericks about this gambling guru who was hired to kind of run the analytics um, and, and really had a lot of say in the front office of the Mavs. And people, the way that he, the coded language of him being a quote unquote seedy guy because he comes from gambling is this relation that's interesting of how these folks are infiltrating um, front offices in a way and really building up these spaces in a way that I think is really interesting. But as you mentioned, the folks that have this embodied knowledge, the folks that have been in these systems, the folks that are former players, they a lot of times are starting to get pushed out of these spaces. So the opportunities um, for certain folks, this idea of the eye test versus, um, you know, this idea of crunching the numbers or advanced statistics is something that I think is a really conflated, you know, like very simplified argument, this jocks versus nerds thing that's happening. I think it's a lot more complex than that. But I think um, one of the things that I struggle with is there's, there are all these ways that this helps us, right? One of the things that has come out of all of the crunching of these numbers is stuff like this term load management, right? So this idea of rest, there's ways that using these numbers and understanding that overworking athletes and pushing them constantly is actually not only good, not only bad for them, but it's also bad for business. And so there's ways that something like the whoop strap is also about how much sleep you get, how much rest you get, how, how much you should or shouldn't put on yourself in terms of your load that day. And so what I've seen that is really interesting, the ambivalence I have with this tech is there's ways that if we listen to it, it, it really can step over some of the ways that we have pushed athletes in their bodies too far. There's ways we can extend careers. There's ways that folks can have an amazing life outside of their athletic career because their, their bodies aren't worn all the way down. And so the ways that rest and sleep are prioritized with some of these apps, I think is helpful. Or this idea of this person needs this much rest or we need they need this many minutes. We can optimize the minutes. Um, there's ways that, yes, there's all kinds of bad things that come from that. But I'm also seeing on the other side the longevity of careers and the ways there's a holistic approach to the whole humanity of a person um, and all the things they might need. And so for me, space to give athletes to rest, to not be pushed to their maximum all the time, I think is one of the things that I'm really interested to see that relationship, you know, especially as I start doing field observations, the relationship between athletic trainers, the personal trainers of athletes, coaches, and playing time. And so that's my most hopeful, optimistic take is that there are a lot of the cultural um, aspects of sport that we're able to push past, that we've been needing to get past for a while. And I see folks being mad, like load management, we're letting LeBron have the night off. Um, but I'm also like, we're also changing the culture of professional sport. And part of that is through this technology. Part of it is a lot of other things happening and, and player agency being part of that. But I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic 
when I think about how that changes a lot of the discourses around pushing to the maximum, and, and that's still happening, obviously, in some spaces, but um, I think that's the, the, the best we might get from some of this stuff is being able to do that. And then a lot of these sports performance technologies have shifted um, to COVID prediction of being able, because they accumulate so much information about your body all the time, right? All this biometric data that's going to this server in Boston or in Silicon Valley, which that's a problem, um, who has access to that. Um, but because there is so much data collected, when something is off, it can it can predetermine that, you know, days before you have a single symptom. Um, so the Aura band was used by the NBA and the WNBA um, in the bubble and wobble. Um, and so I think that there's something really, um, there's some great potential, right? Again, in terms of thinking about this stuff, whether it's the everyday person that's able to take that information to their doctor, for example, um, or it's thinking about the agency of athletes being like, mm, this isn't feeling like, I, something feels off and it might be because I didn't sleep well and it might be because there's something else going on. And so um, there have been folks, you know, that have predicted cancer, have predicted COVID um, through wearing this wearable tech every day. And so I'm constantly sitting with the safety versus surveillance part of it um, and the security aspect, what happens when all this data is collected. Um, and so I will, will just say that the book is not going to be fully celebratory or fully critical. We got to throw all the watches out. Don't wear an Apple watch ever. It will be somewhere in the middle and hopefully complicating these narratives of this eye test versus um, crunching the stats, right, of, of diminishing the importance of embodied knowledge or deciding that tech is king. I think that the best teams are, are balancing that and also acknowledging the full humanity of the athletes that make sport. Well, I can I can tell you we are looking forward to this book um, mightily, and and we can't wait for for it to come. Um, and and I want to thank you, um, Courtney, for for coming on the show. But I have one final question that just stems from some of the prep that um, we did for this episode. I came across um, the Sound of Victory, which <laughs> seems like a really really cool project that focuses on the historical relationship between music sound and sport um, and how musical and, and sporting intersection, intersections inform historical and contemporary understandings of space and place. I'm sure you can do a much, much better job in articulating what it's all about. So could you tell us a little bit about the project? Oh, wow. I love this. I can talk about this all day. It's my, it's a thing that just gives me joy. I work on an incredible project, um, The Sound of Victory. It's at this point, morphing into a digital humanities project for sure. Um, and it started really for me around 2015 with a great scholar, um, Dr. Perry B. Johnson. She's at Penn right now. And uh, she's a great music scholar. And we were reading the same cultural studies scholars and just thinking, she was doing thinking about power and culture through music. I was thinking about it through sport. And we just realized we were thinking through a lot of the same questions of space and place and belonging. Together, we think about labor um, and identity in the same way as well. And so we just started thinking about things. And it's so funny. This is starting around 2015. We started thinking about the Star Spangled Banner and the playing of the national anthem before sporting events. And then 2016 happens, and we're like, oh, there's something here. And before, we were just thinking about it for through, like, 
the ways that people love or hate on performances, right? So this idea of loving Whitney's performance um, in, before the Super Bowl and then hating like Fergie's, for example. Um, and so we were thinking about the performativity and the performance and who's performing, whose body is performing um, the, the national anthem and, and why this is such a weird American thing that we do before sporting events. And, uh, and then, you know, I think after Colin Kaepernick, it, it became this kind of like, what is this space of the anthem as a space of resistance, as a space of performing, patriotism, performing nationalism? So it kind of morphed into a couple of things. And, um, and it's since kind of moved across space and time. It's become archival in some ways, thinking about, for example, Jose Feliciano's performance in 1968 at the World Series, how this reading of a blind Puerto Rican performing it was like, this is a hippie singing the song. Um, and his folksy performance was read against the grain of, of what it means to be an American. Um, we think about what it means to listen to things. Um, and we also think about things like music videos that have athletes, for example, or athletes that make albums. So it's a really multidimensional project. It lives as a podcast. It lives as a website and an Instagram page. We get to interview incredible musicians, athletes, scholars, activists, journalists, um, and really have really rich conversations about what sports sounds like. And so now it's moving into a larger book project on kind of a cultural history of the Super Bowl halftime show, probably the most elevated collision of music and sport. Um, and so we're really trying to tell the story of the Super Bowl halftime show through not only how it's mediated, but also thinking about how gender moves through the halftime show, this highly masculine space of the NFL, um, how militarism, um, how this idea of nationalism moved through um, the national football's massive spectacle. And of course, we talk a lot about the political economy of a space like that, where even commercials can be something um, that is must-see TV. And so that's really where the project lives. We're really excited about it. Um, and it's exciting to do work that can both be a journal article, but can also live outside of academia, which is the goal for any project I'm working on. I'm, I'm, I hate when we silo our work um, in, in these spaces where, where it's inaccessible, it's behind paywalls, and I think it's really important that our work is public-facing, that we're able to connect with folks, especially the folks most affected by the issues we're talking about. I think spaces like this podcast is another great example of that. I think that, that y'all are all doing a lot of heavy lifting on social media and through um, this particular space that, that shows why this work is important um, and who we're actually doing this work for. So thank you for asking me about that. Um, and, and working also, sometimes collaborative work, as I'm sure all of you know, collaborative work can be so rewarding for that reason too. So I'm also just really grateful um, for Perry too, of, of having someone to be in it with me and really to build something that, that we're both really proud of. Well, thank you so much for, for that. Um, it sounds like a brilliant project. If folks want to hear more about it, it's thesoundofvictory.org. Um, it, it looks like a, a, a great project. Um, so, Courtney, we would just like to, to say from all of us, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you for, for being generous with your time today um, and for sharing your, your perspective and your insights. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having me, y'all.